Um, so my name is Michael, and I'm still getting to know a lot of people here, but it's fun to see a lot more familiar faces every week. Um, you know, I might ask you for your name three or four times between now and when I finally get to know it, but me and my wife Heather and our family are, are just grateful to be joining uh, just a fun church family here at The Vine. And um, this morning, we're going to be looking at James chapter 4, verses 13 to 17. So if you want to turn there in your Bibles, if you have it, or it's going to be on the screen if you don't have a Bible with you. Um, And you might be thinking, I thought we were in a series on Proverbs. What's James doing here? Well, it is a departure from Proverbs, but it's not, because James is really the Proverbs of the New Testament. It's kind of like Proverbs 2.0. So it's still looking at these themes of wisdom and how to live well in God's world. So it really fits well with our series in Proverbs. And I just love this, this brief little passage in James. And I think it really helps us think about this question. What does it look like to live well for God? Because I'm guessing that if you think about your life, you don't want to feel like you get to the end and that you've wasted it, right? You, you want to live a life that has meaning, that has purpose, that if your life is a story, it'd be a story worth reading, worth your kids reading, worth others reading. We, we don't want to get to the end and feel like we blew it and we wasted the gift of life that was given to us. And so we want to think well about how do we live well? How do we live a life that has meaning, that honors God, that is good, that glorifies him? And, you know, if you're here this morning and you're on the younger side, you probably are thinking a lot about the excitement of the future, right? You know, you're dreaming about what's to come, right? And there's a lot of times excitement in that as you're starting off on this adventure, Maybe some of you here this morning are feeling more like you're in that like middle period where you're like, you're halfway through maybe like kind of your adult life and you're feeling like, am I just kind of stuck maybe in the monotony, the routine? Like maybe you're feeling there this morning. Maybe some of you are on the little older side and you're getting closer to the end and you're thinking, have I been running this race well? Have I been telling a good story with my life? Well, regardless of where you're at, Regardless of whether you feel like currently your life is a good story or not a good story, I believe God's word wants to teach us how to live well. And God, speaking through the Apostle James, I think is going to give us two basic keys to use in living well for God. And so let me pray, and then I'll read from James 4. All right, let me pray. Father, thank you that you love us, your created people, enough that you have not left us alone, but that you want to speak to us. And so would you help us to listen? Would you help us to listen even if we were feeling distracted? Would you help us to listen even if we feel a hard heart towards you? And maybe we don't know why we're here this morning. Would you help us to listen because you have good words for us? And I pray you'd help me that as I speak, my words would be your words. So we might hear from you and grow and be changed. Pray this in your name. Amen. Let me read from James chapter 4, just verses 13 to 17. Come now, you who say, today or tomorrow we will go into such and such a town and spend a year there and trade and make a profit. Yet 
You do not know what tomorrow will bring. What is your life? For you are a mist that appears for a little time and then vanishes. Instead, you ought to say, if the Lord wills, we will live and do this or that. As it is, you boast in your arrogance. All such boasting is evil. So whoever knows the right thing to do and fails to do it, for him, it is sin. This is God's word. Well, James starts here, right? He wants to introduce us to this character, this person, verse 13, a whoever, so we could stick ourselves in the story and say, look, imagine this person who is saying, look, today or tomorrow, I'm going to go into this town and and do business there, and I'll stay that long in a year, and I'm going to make a profit. And on one hand, you you read that first verse, and if you were to take it on its own, you might say, well, what's wrong with that? I mean, there's nothing wrong, right, with going and doing business and working and, and making money. And James would say, well, of course, there's nothing wrong with just that. But it's some underlying attitude that he's going to pick up on that James is going to question. And it's really this kind of, it's all about me attitude, right? So it's this attitude that says, I'm going to go here. I'm going to do this. I'm going to accomplish this. I'm going to stay there that long as if I'm the one that decides not only what I do as the captain of my fate, but I can actually pull it off because I'm in control of my fate. And that really is oftentimes our, our just default, right? Our default as human beings is to think about ourselves. And when you wake up in the morning, you don't have to do any work to think about, what do I want to do today? What am I going to do right now? You're, you're automatically thinking about yourself and what are the next things I'm going to do? What do I hope to accomplish? But that default can be really uh, unfortunate and deadly, James is saying. It can be foolish and arrogant if it's the only way you're ever thinking. Because what does he say in verse 14? He says, you do not know what tomorrow will bring. What is your life? You're a mist that appears for a little time and then vanishes. You don't know what tomorrow will bring. That's the first thing he says there. You don't actually know what tomorrow will bring. You don't know the future. You can't control it. So you might think, well, tomorrow I'm going to go and do a bunch of work outside, you know, but then all of a sudden it rains, right? You ever had that? You have all these plans to get stuff done on your day off, and then it rains, and all of a sudden all those plans are thrown out the window. Or, or maybe you're thinking, okay, you know, this upcoming Saturday we're going to go and to this drive to this wedding, and you wake up that morning and your car won't start. All of a sudden, you're not going to that wedding anymore, right? Or... What happens if you're just going along, working, and then one day your boss calls you in and says, hey, we're downsizing, and you're not making the cut? All of a sudden, what you thought tomorrow would bring is no longer what tomorrow's bringing, right? We actually don't know what tomorrow will bring. That's James', James very simple point. And not only do we not know what tomorrow will bring, we don't even know if we're going to have a tomorrow. Because what is your life, says James? It's a mist, a mist that vanishes, like that. Just the other day, I was driving on uh, 150 uh, on, the, on the interstate, and I was about to get off on 30, and there was this beautiful, foggy mist, and you could kind of see the rolling hills. It was beautiful, right? But that mist was gone in no time, because the conditions that created the mist were outside of the mist's control and could vanish just as easily. So imagine with me if a particular patch of mist or fog decided, you know what, 
I kind of like Madison, but I think I'm going to plan a seven-week vacation to go check out the Grand Canyon. That'd be pretty foolish, right? And I mean, if you could talk to that patch of mist, you'd be like, you know, sorry to break it to you, but you're probably not going to be around seven weeks. Uh, and the Grand Canyon's pretty far away. And yet James is saying, that's us. We're the mist. And we often just think, yeah, yeah, I know exactly what tomorrow's going to bring. And I know there will be a tomorrow. And we, we assume that there will be a tomorrow and that we can control it and that's going to turn out kind of the way we want. Or if I was to ask you, how long do you think you'll live? Most of us would think, well, probably at least into my 60s, you know? I mean, that's a good average life. But we don't know that. And recent events have reminded us that life can be taken like that when you least expect it. You don't know that there will even be a tomorrow never mind what it will bring. But we often think we do because, frankly, a lot of times we wake up and there is a tomorrow, right? And this has happened so many times, you know. For me, it's been 29 years worth of waking up to tomorrows. For some of you, a little longer, some of you less. But it can become so routine that you just assume there's going to be a tomorrow. And things often turn out just like we do plan. And so we can get this illusion sometimes that we are in control, of the future. We are in control of our lives. We can plan it out just the way we want. And James is trying to say, hold on, slow down. Don't forget who you are. You're like a mist here. Your life is gone in an instant. And not only so then is it foolish, James says, to try to control the future as if you can control it, but he says in verse 16, as it is, you boast in your arrogance All such boasting is evil. He's saying, look, there's only one person who actually knows what tomorrow brings. There's only one person who can guarantee there will be a tomorrow. And that person is God, not you. And so if you claim to have the power that only God does, it's like you're claiming to be God. And that's arrogant because you're not. Right? You can't claim to have the power and authority that only God has because you're not God. Just like if anyone here just stepped up and said, I'm the president of the United States, we'd be like, well, that's a little arrogant and crazy because you're not, right? And James is saying that's what it's like. We we have all these people, all of us sometimes doing this, where we pretend that we're God. Now, you're probably not going around telling people, hey, by the way, I'm God. I can control the future. You're probably not doing that, right? But... We can kind of do that almost subconsciously, right? We, we act as if we're the one that gets to decide what tomorrow brings. We act as if we are in full control. And then we get frustrated or angry when it doesn't turn out the way we want because after all, we were in control, right? And James is saying that's arrogant when you're living that way. It's arrogant when you're acting as if you're in control. You're not the one writing the whole story. You're not the one in control of history, never mind your own life at the end of the day. You're arrogant to claim that. But we're often tempted to think that. And we might say, what, isn't it my life? Don't I have the right to write my life story the way I want? Well, let's look at verse 15. Instead, you ought to say, if the Lord wills, we will live. Let's pause right there. If the Lord wills, we will live. The very fact that you woke up this morning and took a breath was a gift of God to you. 
And tomorrow, if you wake up, it's another gift of God to you. It's his will that you even are here, that you have life, that you continue to have life. He's the one who is the creator of life, the giver of life. And so he has the right to be the author of all of life. On one hand, I think there's something in all of us at points, maybe not always, that likes to buck against that, right? We're like, wait a minute, I want to be in control. I don't like the idea of somebody else in some sense having influence over my life that way. And yet, I often think about the analogy of a story that's really helpful, right? So I really like the Harry Potter series. Now, if I or you wanted to change the story, could we do that? No. You know why? Because we didn't write it, right? J.K. Rowling wrote it. She's the one that wrote the story. So she gets to decide how the story goes. Now, imagine with me if Voldemort... You know, you're talking to him about 100 pages before the end of book seven. You're like, Voldemort, how do you want the story to turn out? He could tell you what he wants the story to turn out to be like. He's the villain, if you haven't read them. But you know what? At the end of the day, the story's going to turn out exactly how J.K. Rowling wants. You know why? Because she's the author. Voldemort's going to make choices. But at the end of the day, the story's going to go the way that J.K. Rowling wants, because she's the author of the story. She has the right to write it the way she wants. And in Psalm 139, 16, God, through the psalmist, uses this very imagery for our lives. It says this, Your eyes saw my unformed substance before we were born, right? In your book were written every one of them the days that were formed for me when as yet there was none of them. Before we were alive, all the days of our life were written down in God's book. He's the author. And we're characters in the story. And we're not even major characters. We're minor characters. Let's not be too arrogant. The world doesn't revolve around us. Now, we still make choices. They matter. But at the end of the day, there's also this sovereignty of God where he's writing the story. And the thing is, even if you don't want to believe that God's the one writing the story, even if you don't like it, you at least have to admit this, that you're not the one in control of everything, right? Even though on those days where we have that illusion, there are days where things don't turn out the way you want, right? There are days where things don't turn out the way you'd like them to be. doesn't matter how young you are, you've had those days. And all of those are reminders that we're not the one in charge of writing the story. That God's using them to say, hang on a second. If you were the one writing the story, it would always turn out your way. But sometimes... I throw in these disappointments to remind you there's someone else writing the story. So what do you do with that? Well, James tells us again, verse 15, instead, you ought to say, if the Lord wills, we will live and do this or that. James is saying, look, here's the reality. God's writing the story. It's God's will that's going to get worked out. So you might as well say, you might as well have the attitude of, okay, I'm going to trust in him. I'm going to rest in that fact. I'm not going to fight it. I'm not going to be angry about the fact. I'm going to rest in it. I'm going to say, if the Lord wills. Now, he's not saying this is a stock phrase, you know? Like, um, you know, you're a terrible Christian if you say what you're planning on doing tomorrow, but don't throw in if the Lord wills, you know? Like, see you at church next week, if the Lord wills. See you at work tomorrow, if the Lord wills. You know, I just want to... Check off that box. I'm trusting in God's sovereignty here. No, that's not what he's talking about. And by the way, if you come here next week, 
This is not the spot to be. We'll hear that announcements. Brittingham Park next week, 10 a.m. Don't forget, okay? So if you come here, bad idea. So, but wh- whether we meet in the park, we're meeting in the park, we don't just say, well, if the Lord wills. It's not a stock phrase. It's an attitude of the heart. It's an attitude of the mind. It's a way of thinking about the future and your life that says, I draw my life plans in pencil, not pen, because pencil's a lot easier to erase than pen. It's the kind of attitude that says, not my will at the end of the day, God, but your will be done. It, it's the attitude that says, look, if life isn't going to turn out my way, then I really have to choose how I'm going to respond. Am I going to respond with trust or frustration? I love this quote by an author named N.D. Wilson. He says this, When faced with unpleasantness or trouble, there are only two ultimate responses with many variations. On the one hand, the Lord gives, the Lord takes away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. On the other, curse God and die. On the one hand, the Lord gives, the Lord takes away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. On the other, curse God and die. And I don't say that glibly. I know there's a multiple ways that these things can work out. And it's hard when God doesn't write the story the way you want. But at the end of the day, you can choose to be frustrated, angry, bitter, depressed. Pick your version of that response. Or you can say, God, I don't know if I like this, but I trust you. So help me still to trust you and walk with you, and, and, us, and believe somehow that you're writing a better story, right? Those are the two responses. So when you're having that day that you have planned all these things to do, and it's terribly unproductive all of a sudden, nothing is going right, how do you respond? Do you respond with, all right, this isn't the way I wanted, but God helped me to still just be faithful, do what I'm called to do, or is it frustration that turns into anger, family members. When, when you were really hoping to just get a couple things done or have a little bit of downtime to yourself while the kids were napping, and then they don't nap, how do you respond? Is it frustration and anger? Or is it, okay, God, help me to faithfully parent my kids? What's your response? What's your response, right? Life isn't going to turn out always the way we want. That is just a given. So how are you going to respond to that disappointment? Are you going to trust God or not? Now, by trusting God, we don't mean that we never make plans, right? You could take this to an extreme and say, like, all right, well, life will just turn out the way God wants, so I'll just, you know, just go with the flow. No, no, it doesn't mean you don't make plans. You can make plans. But it's the kind of planning that says, okay, I'm planning on doing this, but God, if you change that up, I'm going to trust you anyways. It's, it's that wise, careful planning that also leaves room, flexibility for God to be at work. And I'm not talking a personality flexibility. Like, you know, some of you in this room are just like, personality-wise, you can just go with the flow. I'm not one of those people. But I know some of you exist in this world, right? And you can just like go with the flow and you like that and like seeing like a calendar with color-coded things and boxes just like creeps you out and gets you like, 
you know, just messes with you. And there's others of you that are like, that love that. You love, you know, the color-coded calendars and planning everything out, you know, like 6.37 a.m., wake up, 6.38, brush teeth, you know? Like, you love that planning, right? Now, if you're a planner, it might be harder on this, but this isn't about a personality thing. This is about a trust in God thing. Because even if you're not a planner, even if you're a flexible person, when something like sickness or cancer or death enters the picture, I don't care what your personality is. It forces you to wrestle with, do I trust God or not? This is not a personality thing. It's a trust in God thing. And that means if we're going to trust him with hard things, we have to believe he's trustworthy. Right? You don't trust someone who's not trustworthy. And James doesn't mention this here, but he's assuming in this book that actually the God that we trust is a good God who made everything good. And he's a God that's so good that he sent his son to come and save people that try to live life their way instead of his way and died for them. That's the God James is saying you can trust because he's good and he's trustworthy. So what's the pattern of your life? What's the pattern of your response to when life doesn't turn out your way? Is it frustration, bitterness, anger, or is the pattern, God, I don't know if I like this. I don't know if I like this, God, but I'm going to trust you. Will you help me to trust you? Because this is the first key to living life well. It's trusting the storyteller, and it's not you. It's God. He's the storyteller, trusting that he's writing a better story, a good story. It's giving up control of how your story turns out and trusting God with the ending, because it's a good ending in his book. So that's the first key, trusting the storyteller. But then second, we need to think about, well, even if we choose to trust the storytelling God, how do we live out our part of the story, right? If, if you are a character in the story, how do you live out your role well, right? I mean, if you're an actor in a play, you get given a manuscript that teaches you the lines, right? Teaches you what you're supposed to say and what you're supposed to do. So what is that that God has given us? How do we live out our part? Well, I love that James is very practical. That's why a lot of people love the book of James. He's not mystical. He's not saying, all right, if you're wondering how to live well for God, like pray and then look up into the clouds and see what he writes up there. That's not what he says, right? He says something very clear in verse 17. Whoever knows the right thing to do and fails to do it, for him it is sin. If you know the right thing to do and don't do it, that's sin. Or to flip it around positively, if you know the right thing to do, go do it. That's it. Just go do the right thing to do. So what is the right thing to do? You've got to obviously know it, right? Well, that's what this whole book is. The whole book of the Bible is the script that God has given us to know how to live well. Saying this is it. I've already spoken to you. James is assuming that you know the right thing to do. He's not saying figure out. He's saying, whoever knows the right thing to do, you know it. I've been telling you all about it earlier in my letter. The whole Bible's telling you the right thing to do. Now go do it. And this is really an echo of Deuteronomy 29, 29, I think. So right back in Deuteronomy, the people of Israel have left Egypt in slavery. They're about to enter the promised land. A whole generation actually died in the wilderness because they would not obey God. And this new generation is about to go in, and Moses wants to help them to think well about how to live for God. 
And towards the end of the speech, he says this in Deuteronomy 29, 29. The secret things belong to the Lord our God. But the things that are revealed belong to us and to our children forever, that we may do all the words of this law. See what Moses is saying? He's saying, look, there are secret things like, who am I going to marry, God? Where am I going to work five years from now? Those are secret things. You don't know them. You can't predict the future, just like James says. You don't know the future. They're secret things. Don't worry about that. But the things that are revealed, obey them. The things that God has revealed, obey them. Walk in them. God spoke. He's spoken in his word, the Bible. He's spoken all through the book of James. And he's saying, I've spoken. Now do those things. So if we just think about a couple things that we've already learned in this series on Proverbs. I love Zach Nielsen's sermon on Beware the Whisperer. Do you remember that one? About the problem of talking to somebody else about a problem you really have with person over here. Remember how Zach said, okay, when that happens, you gotta tell him, no, 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 you're talking to the wrong person. Go talk to the person you have a problem with. And if you're the one with a problem, go talk to the person you have a problem with. And it's amazing how so many conflicts would end right there if we all obeyed that, right? So this is what James is saying. Look, it's not hard to know how to live for God. Well, it's hard sometimes to obey it, but it's clear. When you have an issue, go talk to someone about it. Imagine how different our families would be, our workplaces would be, our neighborhoods would be if we all obeyed this all the time. Can you think about how cool that would be? No more kind of backroom politics because we just actually talk to each other about the issues and work them through right? Or what about things like being quick to listen, slow to speak, and slow to anger from James chapter 1? What if we actually lived that out perfectly? Imagine the difference that would make. See, what James is saying is he's saying, look, there's things you don't know. You don't know tomorrow. And yet we so often spend all of our time worrying about tomorrow, trying to figure it out. And James says, don't worry about that. The one thing you know to do, go and do that. Don't worry about how the conversation will go with that person you have conflict with. That's, you, don't, you can't figure that out. You just obey and do the one thing you know to do. Go talk to them. Don't worry about the future. Leave that in God's hands. Trust him with the unknown and obey him with what is known. What I love about that is it makes life simpler. <laughs> makes it clearer, right? And then all of a sudden, actually, living for God becomes, so to speak, very ordinary, right? Because there's nothing, like, crazy about what I just said, right? Like, being quick to listen, slow to speak, not gossiping, those aren't, like, amazingly crazy things. They feel very ordinary, maybe even mundane. But actually, what if the key to living a great life is doing all the ordinary, mundane, small things well daily? What if every day you got up and said, God, help me to be slow to anger. Every day, God, help me to work well to honor you. God, every day, help me to love people even that don't love me. God, every day, help me to be quick to forgive as you've forgiven me. What if every day our lives were characterized by that? I think if it was, we'd get to the end and say, wow, that life honored God. What if, if you're a mom and you're staying at home, 
you just say, I want to faithfully raise my kids every day. Or what if you go to work and it's not a job that a lot of people in the world think is popular, but you go there and you work hard every day and you don't badmouth your boss or other coworkers. You treat people with respect and kindness. I think when you get to the end of your life and stand before God, he'll say, well done, good and faithful servant. That mattered. It mattered. And what I love about this is this means that all of life, ordinary life has meaning. And you don't have to be rich. You don't have to be powerful to have a life of meaning. You don't have to go off and do some crazy thing like move to some you know, spot in the Pacific where there's a cannibal tribe, almost get eaten and convert them all to Jesus to have a life that has meaning. Although that'd be really cool if you went and did that. But you can also have a life of meaning by just living in Madison and loving your neighbors, serving them, sharing about the good news of Jesus, being kind towards others, being quick to listen and slow to anger. That life matters to God. Isn't that cool? All of a sudden, the ordinary and the mundane becomes significant. All of a sudden, every day, you have an opportunity to tell a good story with your life by just doing the small, simple things that God has put right before you. Well, so for the man in verse 13, who was going about doing business, James would probably tell him, don't forget, I told you to care for the orphan and the widow. Are you doing that in the midst of your business pursuits? And for us, you might say from James, earlier in James, when you're going through trial and you don't know how to make it through, ask God for wisdom. Don't blame him for the trial. Ask him for wisdom. Don't show partiality, James would say. Guard your tongue. Do those things well. Don't overcomplicate what it means to live well for God. It's hard enough to actually obey the clear things. Don't overcomplicate the rest. If you know the right thing to do, go do it. And if you don't, you're sinning, says James. Even if you don't think you're a terrible person because you're not going out and like stealing, James says, if you know those small faithful things you're supposed to do and you're not doing them, then it's sin. If you're spending all your time worrying about the future instead of just being faithful, it's not good. It's not right. So the second key is obeying the great storyteller. We first need to trust him and then we need to obey him and the things he's made clear. Living well is hard, right? It's hard every day to do it, but it's clear. You trust God with the unknown, with what's out of your control, and you obey God with what's in your control. Trust him with the unknown, trust him with what's out of your control, and then obey him with what's in your control. And like I said, you're only gonna trust him if you believe the story is good. If you believe the story, he's writing good and that he himself is a good storyteller. And, and I don't know about you, but if I was writing a story and then my characters in the story started rebelling against me and trying to write their own script, I'd be tempted to just write them right out of the story. Start over. But God did not do that. He did something radically different. He said, I'm gonna write myself into the story. Jesus, God's son, came into the story and lived the perfect life of obedience and trust to die 
for people that are always trying to live on their own and rose again victorious so that if you trust in him, then you're empowered by his spirit to obey him and to try to be a faithful minor character in the story. And once you trust him, once you trust him as the one who's really in charge, as the only one who can actually save you, then you can obey him. And these two are connected. <clears throat> so I just think about it in my own life, just a couple days ago, there was a day where things were not turning out the way I wanted. <clears throat> and so what I was tempted to do, what I did do, was I got really frustrated with that. And that frustration came out in anger towards my kids and towards my wife, right, who weren't really doing anything wrong. They just happened to be conveniently there for my frustration and anger. And then God brought to mind this passage, which, you know, he's like, hey, you're about to tell people you're supposed to trust people, you know, when life doesn't go your way, and you're not trusting me. That's, that's not very good obeying. Um, oh, yeah. And so what I was doing is the one thing that's clear, be slow to anger, I was failing to do because I wasn't trusting God with the way the day was turning out. And once God convicted me of that and said, hey, don't worry about how the day's turning out. You just focus on not being angry with your kids. That just changed my day. When we trust God with the unknown, it helps us to be faithful, to obey him in the moment. So how do we write a good life story? Well, in one sense, we don't. God's the one writing it. And it's not really about you. It's about him. But what he would tell you is, don't spend all your time figuring out how your story fits into the bigger story. Trust him with that. You be a faithful, minor character. Obey him. Because there's no other way to be happy in Jesus but to trust and obey. Let me pray. Father, thank you so much that though we deserve judgment for our sin, you've instead offered us your son as a way to be forgiven as a way to be made right with you, as a way to be restored to right relationship with you so that we can then recover our roles as they were meant to be, trusting you and obeying you because you are so much bigger than us, you know more than us, and you're telling a better story than we could ever tell. So this morning, would you help us to trust you with that? Father, I think of maybe those who've come in this morning who don't really trust you, or maybe aren't sure whether they should trust you, would you help them to see that you are trustworthy and good? And for all of us who struggle with trusting you in the moments when life is hard, would you help us to remember that you're trustworthy? And would you help us to wake up each day and just be faithful with the things you've given to us to do, with the things you've placed right before us? so we can one day hear, well done, good and faithful servant, enter into the rest that I've prepared for you.